Today's topic is that the two shall become one. We're working out of Ephesians 5 today, which is one of the more meatier and substantial passages in all of the New Testament about marriage uh, and even references uh, to, to the Old Testament. And so there's a lot that could be said, um, and inevitably I will come up short of all that could be said. So that's your qualification. I'm going to take my best swing at it to give you some things. Uh, I'm going to take a turn to some practical applications of these things today and uh and so my all also my general qualification is that you may find some of those extremely offensive and not helpful and um and and that's okay uh they're designed to be helpful um and uh but if you don't find it applicable to your situation um then just pass over it um if you find it helpful um but you still find yourself annoyed with me um then that's probably when you need to send me an email uh do so tomorrow not on sunday afternoon i don't check um and uh so but do so tomorrow and i'd love to spend time with you to talk about it uh these things are important uh it is difficult in the church's life to do two things uh, it's hard for us when addressing the issue of marriage. Uh, oftentimes we fail to do so from a, we do so from a weak theological basis, okay? That is, we go so practical that we don't theologically reflect on what the scriptures are saying and take all of that on board. But then at times when we get so theological, we don't get practical enough, okay? So today we're going to do a little bit of both. Um, and we're going to talk about husbands and wives and all of these roles and the things that uh, this involves. Okay, so strap on your seatbelt. And uh, let me read from uh, Ephesians 5. I'm just going to read 31 through 33. We'll be referencing the whole of 18 through 33. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Ooh. Hopefully that doesn't reflect the state of your marriages, okay? Um, so I'll pray for you. How about that? No, for us. Father, thanks for your word, the gift that it is, and we ask that you lead and guide us through this time as we seek to do these two things, to reflect on what your scriptures say and to apply them to our lives, to bring practical flesh to the bones of what's said here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Passage hardly needs introduction, okay? It's one of the beautiful, most beautiful passages in all of scripture. Most people find it fairly compelling as Paul speaks about the relationship of Christ in the church and how marriage is a picture and a sign of that. Okay? But while it is one of the most beautiful passages, it's also one of those passages that requires some of the most qualification. Okay? Um, and to give that qualification and to give that explanation, I just want to quote to you from C.S. Lewis. Here's what he said. He said, what you see and hear depends a good deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are. Okay? So there's two questions that are pretty critical um, as to how we hear anything, all right? First, you have to ask the question, where do I stand? Okay? Where am I standing in life? Because where you stand in life will determine how you hear something, all right? And where you stand is tightly connected to the culture that you represent. In this room, we have many different cultures that are represented. 
You're from different parts of the country. You represent different generations. We have multiple generations represented in the room. And so that will influence where you stand. And that is going to influence how you hear this passage, okay? And this is especially true when it comes to gender roles and when it comes to working out the details of marriage. There will be an infinite number of expectations in the room about what, uh, about, or there will be an infinite number of interpretations about how to hear these things. And so it's crucial that all of us, young and old alike, reflect on where we stand culturally and then compare that to what the Bible actually says and ask whether our cultural assumptions match what the Bible teaches. So it's important for the more conservative and also for the more progressive, okay, however you want to define those two things, when it comes to looking at marriage roles, it's important for all of us to come and be willing to be examined and to be interrogated by what the Scripture says, okay? Because that's where we stand as Christians, okay? We stand under the lordship of Jesus, and he gets the green light all the time to correct us. He gets the green light to criticize us, okay? And we need to always be open to that and hearing it fresh. And so the second question is, what sort of person am I? And if we're really going to hear Scripture's commands, especially when you arrive at the household codes of Ephesians 5 and 6, okay? This is where Paul starts meddling, all right? He gets into the practical details of life. But when we get down into that household context, we have to have the context uh, for what he's saying. In chapter 5, it begins with a call to imitate God by living and walking in love in the same way that Jesus loves us, okay? He was a fragrant offering to God, and so we're called to walk in that same love. That's the context of chapter 5, all right? And then Paul reminds us that we are to love because we are God's beloved children. God rescued us from spiritual death through Jesus, and now we're to walk in that way, all right? And so this is what it means to be God's workmanship. That's what we're called in chapter 2, that God's workmanship walks in the way of love after Jesus' example. Now, why is, that, uh, why is that exactly important? Because what kind of person we are will deeply impact what we hear, okay? If, we, if our starting point is our personal rights, or our starting point is our right to define ourselves as to how we want to be uh, understood in the world, or if our starting point is our personal authority and powering up on other people, then you will inevitably mishear this passage, okay? But if your starting point is a genuine desire as one who's been rescued by Jesus to follow him, then that gives you the proper orientation. That is the orientation that gives Jesus the green light, okay? That he gets to be the one who defines your life. He gets to be the one to tell you how to order your marriage. He gets to be the one who can correct you in the midst of your maybe good marriage that's also disorderly, okay? Um, so that's uh, how we're going to approach this. Because once we understand where we, where we stand and once we understand what sort of people we are, we can then begin to ask the important questions of this passage. And that important question, there are three of them that we're going to ask and answer this morning, okay? The first one you find there on your outline is what does a healthy marriage require? Here's the answer. You can write it down that a healthy marriage requires submission, mutual submission, freely rendered, 
for the good of the household. That's what a healthy marriage requires. If you look at with me in verse 18, you'll see how this entire section of Ephesians is developed. Okay, now in verse 18, we're instructed not to get drunk with wine. Okay, but rather we are to be filled with the Spirit. Follow with me there. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, Paul is then going to give three what we would call participle phrases that explain what it means to be filled with the Spirit, okay? In verse 18 and 19, he says, singing and making melody to the Lord in songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's the first thing you're to do in light of being filled with the Spirit, all right? Sing and make melody. The second is that you're to give thanks always for everything to God the Father in Jesus' name. Now, does that mean some things? Does that mean the things that are just going well? Everything, okay? We, give, we are to be a people that are filled with gratitude, who learn to give thanks to God for all of the things that are in our lives, the good and perhaps the more challenging, all right? That's the second thing about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Third thing, an important thing for us here, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, this is really important in verse 21 because it is the turn right before Paul is going to speak about the Christian household. Before he addresses husbands and wives, he says what it means to be filled with the Spirit is to be a submissive person, okay? And then what he's going to do is fill out what that means for the Christian marriage, for husband and wife, okay? And it's going to take on some different applications, but because God is committed to us in Jesus, we're committed to this kind of way of life, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this involves loving others and submitting ourselves to others, laying down our lives, being a fragrant aroma and sacrifice. This is what kind of people we are. This is what we aspire to be. And so now what we're gonna find in the rest of the chapter is that mutual submission that we're called to is going to be defined for us and how it plays out in the Christian home. And that is going to run from 522 all the way through 6-9 because he's going to address children, he's going to address uh, the relationship between employers um, and employees, he's going to address all kinds of things, but we're going to focus on this idea of husband and wife. Now, when a lot of people think about Ephesians 5, and we need to go ahead and address this quickly, as they get into the specifics, specifically when you look at the first phrases here of verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. People immediately hear a statement of inequality, right? And that's just a modern mindset. It reflects a cultural attitude and it is somewhat understandable. People just immediately think that this is addressing wives as people who are unequal to their husbands. It's important to consider a few broader things about this passage because in Ephesians 5 22 through 6 9 this is what we would call a household code all right these are not unique to the Bible in fact the great philosophers of the ancient world provided household codes but one of the interesting thing is when you compare Paul's household code to those other household codes there's one remarkable difference do you know who was addressed in the great household codes of the pagan philosophers? The head of the household. 
and only the head of the household. So the head of household was addressed about how he was behaved. He was addressed about how to work with his wife. He was addressed about how to work with his servants. He was addressed about how to relate to his children. But he was the only one who was addressed. And so no matter what you may think about this passage or how challenging you may find it, there's absolutely something that was just revolutionary going on. Because who does Paul address? He addresses everyone who's inside the Christian household. Okay? And so he puts everyone on a fundamental basis of equality because he believes that every human is created in the image of God. Okay, and so what's going on in Ephesians 5? Here is not any statement of inequality, but rather what we have to, to recognize is that the Bible, the Bible has this assumption of equality of worth, but that does not mean identity of role, okay? Equality of worth does not equal identity of role. Now, we recognize that in life all across uh, other stations, okay? But what Paul is going to contend here is that equality of worth does not equal identity of role, and that it's important for us to recognize that in the marriage. We'll get into all the details of that. And so we have different roles in the economy of the household, Mutual submission to love and serve one another does not undermine the authority structures that God has built into a marriage. But what it does is it radically transforms those structures. Okay? And that's what we're going to get into now is the transformation of those structures. So question number two, what are the husband's responsibilities? Definition, healthy marriage requires a husband to love his wife sacrificially. All right, and guys, I want to say that, yes, this passage begins in verse 22 by addressing uh, the wives, but the bulk of the words in this passage are, all, are devoted to you, okay? And when uh, he arrives in verse 33 where he gives his summary, listen to what he says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband, all right? And so that's the summary that we're mostly going to be working out of. So a healthy marriage requires a husband to love his wife sacrificially. Verse 23 in this passage, we learn that the husband is the head of the Christian household. All right? As Christ is the head of the church, so the husband is the head of the Christian household. He's assigned that role. But unfortunately, this headship culturally has been misunderstood and it has been misapplied. A husband's headship is not a sovereign right to self-centered behavior, okay? He's not the dictator of a home. He's not the king of that home. He's not the ruler or the tyrant. That this idea of headship in the Christian home is not to inspire the attitude of what I say goes, okay? But this is how this has often been passed down through, uh, through culture, but rather, the office that God assigns to the husband as the head of the household is that he is to put aside his own interest in order to advance the interest of his family. He's to advance the interest of his wife. He's to advance the interest of his children where that's relevant. And so his role is to serve uh, the whole, that is, every interest of the family at cost to himself. That's what the godly husband does. Headship is theologically defined by our understanding of what Jesus does for us. Okay, and this is where we cannot escape theology when we talk about marriage. 
Because where does Paul directly go? He goes to the mystery. That the relationship of a husband and a wife is related to Jesus' uh, relationship to the church. And so as a husband, you exist to oversee the overall health and vitality of everyone in the household. Okay? This is what it means for the husband to be, if you want to use the phrase, in charge. You're in charge by laying down your life for the good of everyone around you. Okay? Now we'll skip practical. What exactly does that entail? Okay? This is where I'll get into cultural matters and where I'll address some of the weaknesses that I've experienced as a pastor and some of the weaknesses that I've experienced as a husband. All right? What does this entail to be a sacrificial spouse? First, it means that you are emotionally and spiritually connected with everyone in the household. Okay? If you're going to lay down your life for your household, if you're going to sacrifice for them, it means that you have to understand what's going on. Okay? You can't be vacant. You can't be absent. You have to know what's going on, and you can't think that this stuff just belongs to a mother's role, perhaps. Okay? That is a kind of sexist approach. How can you possibly provide leadership if you don't know what is happening on the ground? Okay? And so, guys, it is an invitation that if you're going to be the leader of the home, if you're going to be the leader of a Christian home in particular, that you need to be emotionally engaged and spiritually connected with everyone, with the children, with your wife, that you can't get around that, right? That you can't know how to sacrifice if you don't know what the needs are, all right? Second, it means that you take responsibility. It means that you become intentional. Now, over the years, as I've observed the own, my own experience with kind of lapsing into passivity, and as I've also worked with people, as they've kind of lapsed, um, particularly husbands, lapsing into passivity, I've noticed that people, that this follows a few trends, okay? that people become passive, turning over their responsibilities in a couple of circumstances. The first, they, turn, they become passive when they feel like they have failed. Okay. Can any husband say that he's exercised these duties perfectly? No. Okay. You can't. None of us have done so perfectly. We've all failed in front of our spouse. And that particular experience of failure oftentimes leads to passivity, all right? Another thing that leads to passivity is when we don't feel respected by our wives, okay? That disrespect can happen uh, on multiple levels. Sometimes it may be our, perce our perception. Sometimes it may be an active uh, account of that disrespect. But when we don't feel respected by our wives, we will lapse into passivity. Now, we also lapse into passivity when we get overwhelmed by complexity. Is family life free from complexity? Oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, it gets so overwhelming on days. You've got multiple things going on with, with kids. You've got multiple things going on in your relationship. You've got in-laws and parents. You've got neighbors. You've got all kinds of things. And any number of those things can be going wrong or well 
on any number of days and it can all completely flip the next day, okay? There's a tremendous amount of complexity when it comes to the Christian life. And husbands who get overwhelmed by that complexity, and particularly the emotional complexity of family life, oftentimes lapse into passivity, all right? So in these moments, we tend to emphasize other things. That is when we kind of get overwhelmed or when we're feeling guilty or when we don't feel respected. So we work and we can do so under the godly banner of, hey, I'm providing for the family. But what we know is we're, we're really escaping. Sometimes we play, that is hobbies or different things. And so we escape into play. We can escape in more destructive and unhelpful ways or we just focus on placating everyone. That is keeping everybody happy. And we say, well, I'm serving them all. But I wanna to suggest to you that this is not taking responsibility, guys. That this is not taking responsibility and being intentional in the way that God calls us to be. When there needs to be a hard conversation, that is your responsibility inside of that household, okay? And your responsibility is to figure out how to, take, how to have that hard conversation in a good way. How do I take this really hard conversation that needs to happen with this child or this hard conversation that I need to have with my spouse about something that's not going right, how do I do that in a good way? How do I do that as a Christian? How do I do it in a way that serves that child or serves my spouse? And so it begins by examining ourselves. We have to take the plank out of our own eye, okay? It means that we don't just come from the position of authority as if we have divine right and we do everything correct. Know that the husband is the chief repenter, the husband is the chief self-examiner in the family, and that it's from that spiritual health and from that type of spiritual maturity that we can then step into governing and leading our homes well. And so we have to convince everyone of the integrity of our faith and of our desire to follow after God, recognizing that we will not do so perfectly, but we have to have them convinced that we're really in that game and that that's the most important game in the world. And it's then that they will experience our love and commitment to them. It's in that context that we can say the hardest things to one another. Because here's the end of the day. Your spouse and then your family, they know you better than anybody. Okay? They know your weaknesses. They know your faults. The other week, one of my sons, I was giving him some advice, and he said, well, Dad, I don't want to do that exactly like you do. Oh. And you know what? He was right. It's not that it's done that way every time, but it has been done that way. And he was exactly right. And it was leveling. And I have to confess to you, there's enough shame in my failures to hear him say that, that it could cut me out from the knees. That I never want to talk with him about that subject again. But would I serve my son well if I did that? No. And so what it means for me at that moment to lead my family well is to tell him, you know what, where you're exactly right. And I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry you heard me say that. I'm sorry that you saw me behave that way. That was wrong. And dad is asking God to help him change. And so for me to be the governor of my family that day meant that I had to be the chief repenter. Okay? And then say, but let's talk about how that can go better. And let's talk about for you what it means to have a better course. Okay? And what it means for you to address conflict well and to work through these things. So, guys, everyone has to be convinced in the family of your integrity in front of God. That is, for your desire to be repentant and leading and listening, okay? And then knowing that you come to them in that type of love. All right, this is what it means to take responsibility to be intentional, is you have to take responsibility for your relationship with God, and then you take responsibility for your relationships with everybody in the household. Because what it means for you to lead is to oversee and to steward the health of that whole system, okay? Third thing here, what does it entail? It means that you nourish and cherish your wife. Now, this is verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. This is how we're to relate to our wives, nourishing and cherishing. And this is where it's important for us to push back against cultural definitions of love that we're bombarded with every day. We're told that love is about self-fulfillment, that it's an emotion, it's a psychological state of happiness. But love in the Bible is defined very differently. It's a choice. It's an orientation to life. And guys, what you have to decide in your marriage is, am I going to love my wife? Not theoretically, not in the abstract. But each day, seven days a week, 24 hours of that day, except perhaps you get some off time while you sleep, however well you sleep, but you have to decide, am I going to make this conscious choice to nurture and cherish my wife in the way that Jesus does the church? Now, what we tend to do is think in terms of reciprocation, that this is kind of a, uh, a relationship in which there's a 50-50, okay? That I'll love when I am kind of feeling that she's responding, right? What's the problem with that equation? We're so sinful and warped <laughs> that we will always find the deficit on the other side, okay? We're going sit, to be sitting there thinking, they're not coming up snuff. They're not getting it done, okay? That will always be the equation for us. But here's the end of the day. It's not a formula. What you're called to is not a 50-50. You're called to 100%. And so, guys, with 100% of what you have, with 100% of what you are, nurture and cherish your wife. You love her. You initiate towards her. It means that we love and serve her. It means that we listen to her. It means to recognize that she has gifts and capabilities, capacities that you don't. It means that she's better at you, that you recognize she's better at things than you. It means that you sacrifice so that she shines so that she reaches capacity and potential. And it means that you challenge her where she's weak in the same way that she will for you. And so specifically, we take responsibility for cultivating that relationship and cultivating our wife and seeing her flourish in all of her beauty and all of her gifts 
and all of her responsibilities to God. And so this is what it looks like to be one who sacrifices. We could go on all day, um, and I'm sure that um, some, of, some of the wives in the room might want me to continue. But we'll pause there, count that as a beginning, but this is what it looks like to be the head of a Christian household. It's not particularly an enviable position. It's a position of tremendous responsibility because it means that we have to oversee the health of everyone in that household, and we have to prioritize that. And it means that we disadvantage ourselves to advantage all of those people who are under our care. That's what it involves. Now third, what are the wife's responsibilities? Paul sums it up in verse 33. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, he's particularly kind of here summarizing what he's begun to say in verse 22 and 23. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And so the instructions are fairly plain that wives are to render respect to their husbands. And if you know anything about the fragile ego of a male, you'll know that this is one of his greatest needs in life. In order to successfully launch out into life and a career, in order to successfully parent children, that he really deeply needs your respect. So let's talk about the practical side of this. What does this entail? Let's say what it doesn't first. It doesn't mean that you don't have an opinion. It doesn't mean that you have to be a wallflower. It doesn't mean that you have to stay at home. That's a cultural application. I always laugh sometimes in kind of complementarian uh, circles where people quote Proverbs 31. And it's the best I can tell from Proverbs 31, this was a very industrious woman, <laughs> you know, very committed to the economy of the household and what's going on, all right? Extremely engaged, all right? So uh, rather, Yeah, so it's not going to mean that, that, that you're just uh, in the background um, with no engagement. But it is going to require some things of you. It requires that you choose to respect your husband despite his failures and despite his weaknesses. And working with couples over the years where the husband in particular feels disrespected, where he feels undercut by his wife, and talking with the wife, she will inevitably say, well, we didn't get here overnight. And it's important to affirm, yes, we need to talk about that. Okay, and we need to get into all of that story. We've got to mind that and get into all the things that have uh, taken place. But it's also incredibly important to recognize that respect is a choice, just like loving and cherishing and nurturing is. Okay? And that in the same way that a wife longs to be nurtured and cherished and loved, so a husband longs to be respected. And so it means that for wives where your husbands have failed, that you need to really dig deep and learn how to exercise forgiveness. There's perhaps no place that's more challenging to not have a long memory than in a marriage. But we have to truly forgive one another's failures. We see the worst sides of one another. Everyone does. And if we're going to live with a vivid memory of all those failures, and that any time we approach a situation 
where those failures could reappear, if we're going to hold that over their heads, I can tell you that your husband is never going to feel respected, okay, when he's held kind of hostage by that. And so we have to learn to truly forgive, and we have to learn how to allow our husbands to grow. Your husband, excuse me. <laughs> we had a session on that. Um, all right. So this is what it's going to require. Third, it requires that you pay careful attention to your discontentment. This is one of those things that I've just picked up over time, okay, about where husbands particularly feel disrespected and undercut by their wives. It comes in a strange form, but it's just the particular struggle of wives where they become discontented with their situations in life or their relationships or how exactly life is going. And this can become a particular preoccupation. It can become a source of conversation that overwhelms the home. And in working with women over the years, it's been interesting to, uh, to see that it's hard to understand the impact that that has on a husband. But this is the impact. When the husband doesn't feel, when the husband experiences the discontentment of his wife, the way that he often interprets that is that he's not providing adequately for the home. And so over time, as that discontentment continues to grow, it continues to erode the foundations of his respect. And so if the discontentment is, oh, well, if, if we only had a little bit more money and could, could do this for um, our son, if we could only do this for our daughter, if we could only provide for the college education that our parents provided for us, if we could only go on that vacation, if we could get them a car when they're 16, but, you know, we just don't have enough. All of those types of things, and they exist from birth till well into adulthood, okay? All of those types of things I'm just asking you to be aware of, that discontentment can really erode at the foundations of your husband's, of your respect for your husband. So please pay attention to that. Fourth, it requires that you not compare him to what another husband appears to be on a superficial analysis. This is an important one that it is very easy to look out into the world and to see someone who you think is just a shining example of what you want your husband really to be. And you know, here's the thing. This is just the old adage that the grass is always greener on the other side. Because what's the reality? The grass is brown everywhere. <laughs> this is the reality. And it's not that everybody's completely awful or depraved. But the reality is that every person has their challenges, has their weaknesses, has their sets of sins. And if you get to know them well enough, guess what? You'll run into every one of those, <laughs> all right? And it's easy for us to romanticize about other people and to say, well, you know, if you could only be like so-and-so. And ladies, I just want to suggest to you that there's nothing more undercutting for men than this. Um, that it can uh, fill them with a sense of failure in comparison and devastation um, that is uh, that's particularly difficult to recover from, okay? And so be careful. 
And what we're talking about here really is guarding your heart, okay, and understanding the relationship of the heart to your marriage and the things that become expressed to your husband, okay? That these do oftentimes turn into him feeling disrespected. And finally, and this is related to what we did on the first week, it means that you also recognize what your husband cannot do, okay? Your husband is a gift to you. He does many things, okay? And you should lean on him. You should rely upon him. But one of the things about respecting your husband is respecting that he has a limited place in your life. And your husband cannot be God for you, okay? And so you need to respect that limited role that he does have, that he can't fix all the anxieties and concerns, the burdens and the cares of the world. He needs to listen to those. He needs to be concerned about them. But those things can only be resolved in you going to God. Those things can only be handled by Jesus. And so, yes, he is there to bear your burdens. He is there to go with you. But you also have to recognize that there are very human limits to who he is. And that's part of what it also means to respect him. Now, let's wrap this back up. Helen Rowland, she's a writer on marriage, and she says this, and it's perhaps one of the clearest things I've ever read about marriage. Marriage is the operation by which a woman's vanity and a man's ego are extracted without anesthetic. And guys, that is what's going on. I remember a couple of years into marriage, I told Melissa, it feels like our marriage is like the sanctification vice grips. And I was a little, I didn't expect that fully when I stepped into it. But God was extracting things without much anesthetic. It felt like I had a private investigator in my life. You know, looking into every corner and turn. And things that I was able to keep shielded from many people were all of a sudden under a microscope and exposed. And what was I going to do with all that? And it was after some good counsel and after some hard work that I began to see that this was God's invitation to me, that my wife was a gift, and that I needed to take God's invitation to allow him to extract those things from my life without anesthetic. But here's what happens when we fail to do this, okay? When we fail to allow our marriage to be that rough operation, okay? Husbands will fail to take ownership for the family in that comprehensive sense, and then wives will struggle to respect their husband. And this kicks off a cycle, okay? Self-reinforcing cycle. In the absence of respect, men tend to become more passive and less intentional with the family. This amps up the wife. She feels isolated and uncared for while he shuts down in the face of increasing emotional complexity. It just becomes a spin cycle. Small things become big things. Communication becomes very difficult. Conflict resolution actually begins to break down into just a series of volleys of old and past failures. Intimacy becomes a challenge, which is never helpful when things are not well. Familiarity begins to breed contempt, resentments 
grows strong, and the remembrance of past failures grows even stronger. And so what ends up happening is we kind of negotiate a truce where we retreat into our corners and we figure out how to coexist. And guys, that's not what the world needs from our marriages. What the world needs is for the institution of marriage to be redefined in Christian terms. And it doesn't mean that you will have the perfect and glamorous marriage. But what it needs from us is to kind of take up this very theological and also very practical task of mutually submitting ourselves to one another and taking up the roles that God has given to us. I'm going to give you a practical exercise here uh, that you can perhaps apply this week if you desire to do so. This comes out of real-time Colson family uh, life together. Melissa and I had moved to Washington, D.C. to plant a church. Um, there was a turnover in the administration uh, that was taking place due to the electoral vote that year. And all of a sudden, you know, uh, 10% of my very small number of people that were gathering to plant that church were unemployed. Many people moved away. And so all of a sudden, what had seemed like a great idea to pick my family up from Memphis, Tennessee and move to Washington, D.C. was not looking so great. And I was getting good questions at home, like, what's your plan for if this doesn't work out? Well, we got the money in the bank, in, in the church planning fund for a paycheck for a year, I could say. We'd also been married seven years. We had two little blonde devils. They were very uh, needy at that point. They required a lot of energy. They were uh, two and four, three and five, somewhere in there. It was all hands on deck. We were working hard, we were exhausted, we had gone through a lot, we were struggling to then communicate well, we had transitions going on, things were tough. And so finally, in the midst of a lot of failed attempts to address it, I just came up with a practical exercise for us, and I'm sure I stole this from somewhere, okay? I just can't remember, it was 14 years ago, all right? But I wanna give you a practical exercise, all right? So this is gonna take multiple days, but I want you to write down three things that you're thankful for in your spouse. Okay? And then you sit down and you share those with one another. Don't veil a critique and be specific, all right? Give examples. Tell them why each of these things is important to you. I want you both to do that, all right? This is the exercise of what it means to be filled with the Spirit and to give thanks, all right? And before you address really hard things, okay, particularly if you're feeling stuck in your marriage, you need to remember to give thanks and to be filled with gratitude for your spouse. So do not do this exercise without beginning there. If you do, you have no permission from me. It's not on my dime. Don't call me. Kidding. Uh, but please take up the exercise first with gratitude. Now, second, write down three areas that you would like to see change. Each spouse gets a green light to speak without being interrupted. All right, the other spouse listens, asks questions to clarify at the end, and repeats back the three concerns. Free from interpretation, 
just stating what the concerns are. All right? Now, what I would like you to do then is pause. Take a day. The next day, come back. After giving some time to reflection and prayer, then I'd like you to have another conversation about those three areas of stated weakness. It's really important. And you take some ownership for the areas where you can see the need for improvement. And then on the next day, you can start the process of flipping the roles. Okay? So this is going to take you five days. If you're in a kind of hard spot in your marriage, you need to expect that's going to take a lot more in five days. Okay? And so some of you may go, no, that, that is way too much. Your marriage is worth it. Okay? And it takes constructive time. It takes spiritual time. It takes reflective time. It takes a lot of intentionality. And I would say that the lack of intentionality is oftentimes what kills the health and vitality of people's marriages. So take up a practical exercise that's fairly easy and listen to one another. Value what's being said. Also affirm one another. And one of the most important things is when you share those areas of weakness, you can critique, but I would encourage you not to criticize. Okay? Now let me draw the distinction there. Critique is when you share something specific. It frustrates me when you fail to take out the trash. I'm going to use something silly, okay? Critique, that's a good one. Criticism, you never take out the trash. All right? Do you see the difference? There's a globalizing here that condemns the person and doesn't leave them any room, okay? Because he's going to be able to think of one area where, oh, no, I took out the trash on Tuesday. You know, <laughs> um, are you in a productive conversation at that point? Violently shake your heads, no, <laughs> you're not. But someone can do something with, it's frustrating to me when you don't take out the trash, okay? He can do something with that. He can say, you're right, I have not done that well, okay? Now you're gonna be talking about bigger things in the trash, hopefully, okay? But I just give you that silly example so you know how to do that because criticism, that globalization, is the killer of, of good conversation. Also, just remember to please listen, okay? Defensiveness is the other immediate killer of the process, all right? Mike Mason, I got to end here. Oh, my goodness. Um, Mike Mason, in his book, The Mystery of Marriage, um, it's one of the best marriage books I've ever read. It's more on the philosophical and kind of theological side. It was written by a young guy who was a seminary student who was engaged. J.I. Packer was asked to write the Ford. This guy was actually a student of Packer's. And Packer writes in the Ford, I would have never thought I would have written an endorsement for a book written by an engaged man who was one of my students. And then Packer, who'd been married for over like 50 years at this point, <laughs> says, this is the best book I've ever read on marriage. It's extremely thoughtful. But he explains that every marriage arrives at that place where husband and wife stare at each other from opposite ends of dry and hard ground. That this inevitably happens in every marriage we find ourselves in these places. And it's in that dry, hard ground that God has appointed that we grow a garden. The soil is hard, it's clay, and most would assume that nothing can grow there. But guys, what we have to remember is that there's always a way out. For every marriage and for every problem that it encounters, there is always a way out. 
And that way out is that mutually submissive, sacrificing love. That is the way out. And so where our culture defines the way out very differently, we as Christians take up an invitation from God to be like Jesus, to submit to one another, to love one another, to lay down our lives for one another. So take up that calling. Let that redefine the institution of marriage. Let that redefine your life together as well. I'm going to pray, and we got to go. Father, thanks for the time, and we ask for your help. Give us wisdom in applying these things and working it out. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.